Matthew 10 as we continue in our study in the lives of the 12 apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, and let's actually begin in chapter 9, verse 37. It says, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labors into his harvest. So that is the context leading into what happens in chapter 10. He is seeing the need of the gospel and that there needs to be workers in the fields. Christ answers this prayer in chapter 10 verse 1. He called unto him his 12 disciples. He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the name of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, and the two men that we'll look at today are Philip and Bartholomew. Father, we thank you again for your word today. What an incredible joy and honor it is to be able to stand in honor of your great book, and I pray that you would open our hearts up to receive the word of God that is not only able to save, but to sanctify, and so do your work in us today. May we May we hold your word as heavy in our hearts and not take lightly this great privilege of your word. Lord, speak through your servant today for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated today. This morning we are continuing in our study of the lives of these 12 men that Jesus called to be apostles. The word disciples comes from the Greek mathetes, which just means a learner, a follower, a student of Jesus. And he named these 12 disciples apostles or apostolos, which means sent ones. And in a a smaller sense, all of us are apostles of Christ in the sense that we are sent by God to proclaim his gospel. But in a specific sense, they were called especially to be the 12 apostles, and there were only 12 Now, one of these men we saw, uh, or I should say, why do we study the lives of these 12 disciples? For one, these men uh, were specially called by God uh, to be the 12 apostles who would do the greatest of all works, which would be launching of the church. Secondly, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that Paul refers to them as the foundation stones of the church, uh, Christ being the chief cornerstone. Thirdly, Jesus said that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, according to Matthew 19, 28. So these were very significant men. So we want to examine their life to see what kind of people God uses to fulfill his work and to build his kingdom. And what we've learned so far is these were just regular men. They're people like you and I. We saw that the first four that were called were two sets of brothers, two sets of brothers, They were all fishermen. We know four were fishermen, and and very likely seven were fishermen. When you read John 21, seven of them went fishing, uh, and and, and so very likely those seven were fishermen, including Philip and Bartholomew. Uh, They were willing to follow Jesus when he called them. Uh, They were willing to leave their profession, to leave their nets, to leave their home. Uh, they, they They were willing to leave what was comfortable to them, to follow the Lord. They, they placed more value in the spiritual than in the physical. They were normal, everyday, blue-collar guys. They were not perfect men. We saw they all had lapses of faith, 
They all argued over who was the greatest. They all left Jesus the night of his betrayal. Uh, then we saw the leader of the group reflected those weaknesses in his own life again and again. He walked on water, but then he sank because of his lack of faith. He uh, proclaimed, Christ, you're the, uh, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he turned around and rebuked Jesus. Uh, he said he would never deny Christ. Then he uh, swore that he never knew the man. So uh, God used them even in spite of these shortcomings and, and their sins and their failures and their pride and, and weaknesses. We saw also a couple of weeks ago the life of Andrew, which was Peter's younger brother who really stood in the shadow of his older brother Peter, but he didn't mind that. Uh, he was just a faithful evangelist, humbly bringing people to Christ. Then last week we saw the sons of thunder, James and John, who were uh, zealous for Christ, and, and when they were going into the town of Samaria and they wouldn't let them stay there, they said, Jesus uh, can we call down fire from heaven and just burn them all up? And so uh, they had a fiery zeal for God, but they, they, lacked the tr they lacked some love in their passion for the truth. And uh, though later on they learned love because God used them uh, in such a mighty way. We saw James was so zealous that the raves and the waves and the ripples that he created uh, caused him to be the first martyr in Jerusalem as Herod Agrippa had put him to death as the first of the apostles to die. Then we saw his brother John, uh, who was known as the apostle of love, though he was a, one of the sons of thunder, and God used him to write five of the New Testament books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then the great apocalyptic book of Revelation. And then he was the only one out of all the disciples and apostles to die a peaceful death when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. As a pastor, I've always been intrigued with biographies. And I find in life that one way to really edify your own spiritual life, if you ever feel spiritually fatigued or just not on fire for God, study someone's biography that God used in a great way. Pull out George Whitfield's biography and study his life. Study Dwight L. Moody. Study Charles Spurgeon, the Wesley brothers, Hudson Taylor, John Knox. Read about men like Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the greatest thinker in America's history, greatest theologian, and, and see how God used them. I've officiated over 150 funerals. I had a funeral service even last night at the VFW, which was a unique setting for me to preach in. But praise God to see people who called out to Christ in that setting. But all of the funerals that I've done, I sit down with a family and I ask them this question. So tell me about your loved one. And it never ceases to impact me. I, I, I'm, it's, it's always a weighty reality to examine a person's life because, because they're giving me the cliff notes of the person. They're giving me the, the high points. And, and I think sometimes no matter how that person would have identified themselves, I want you to think about this. No matter how you or I would identify ourselves, you're not going to be the one identifying yourself. You've already written the story. You're not in the room. It's your family. It's close friends. And they're defining you to me. They're telling me who you are. I ask, what, what words define them? And, and they begin to use words that characterize the entirety of the person's life. 
What most stands out to you about their life? What impacted you in their life? What did they do? Who were they to you? What are they known by? And I would ask you, what would your family say about you? What what are you most known by? What would those closest to you say about you? How would they define you? What kind of impact have you made on the people in your life? What are you going to pass on when you pass on? You need to think about that. You need to consider that. You need to weigh your life in the balance and see if you're found wanting. As we examine these men's lives, we need to reconsider even our own lives, our own biographies. You know, I think about each year of our life as being a chapter of our life. I'm on chapter 42 this year. You know, there's, there's some of you are on chapter 10, chapter 50. Some of us are in our 90th plus chapters. We have a 90 plus year old who's coming to join the church next service, who has given his life to Christ. So thankful for that. What does the story of your life say about you? And I would ask you the question, who's authoring your life? Who's, who's writing the story? You need to know the reason that we're examining the life of these 12, 12 apostles is because there was a point at some time in their life 2,000 years ago that they turned the pen of their life over to God. And they said, God, I want you to be the author now. You, you dictate my life. We drop our nets. We leave everything to follow you. We belong to Christ now. They let the Lord author their life. And because of that, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about them. The impact of their life has rippled through eternity. And you will never have a greater impact in this world than if you were to turn your life over to Christ. So who's calling the shots? Today, let me remind you, we're all writing our biographies. What does this year say about your life? Because I can tell you this much, if you stay at Lighthouse and you die before me, I will meet with your family. And and they will tell me about you. And then I will stand up in front of crowds of 50 or 100 or several hundred people and we will define you before we lay you to rest. I think it's important to consider that. And so praise the Lord for the joy of examining these men. Uh, We need good examples, don't we? We need to see whose lives that God said. These these men's lives were lived in such a way it's worth remembering them. It's worth examining them. It's worth noting their lives in such a way that we would seek to follow their examples. So today, let's first of all look at the Apostle Philip. The Apostle Philip. Now, I told you a few weeks ago that the 12 apostles were grouped in three groupings. Group one. Uh, were the closest to Jesus. They involved Peter, who was the leader of the twelve, then his brother Andrew, and then James and John. The second group is Philip, Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. We'll look at Thomas and Matthew next week. Intriguing characters. And then the third group was James, Lavius, or Thaddeus, Simon, and the well-known Judas Iscariot. Now, in the gr- second group of disciples, or a 12 apostles, because they were classified in three groups among the 12. Philip is always listed first, which means he must have been the leader among them. The first three Gospels do not speak about Philip outside of mentioning him in the list of the 12, but John gives us some 
detailed information about him. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to John chapter number one with me, John chapter number one. And here we find some things about Philip, fascinating fellow. One of the first things that we find about Philip is Philip was pursued by Christ. He was pursued by Christ. Now, the first two disciples who met Jesus were Andrew and John. They were introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist. If you look at verse 35 in John 1, it says, again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, that was Andrew and John. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. So, so John introduced them to Jesus. After they learn of Christ, the first thing Andrew does in verse 41 and verse 42, it says, He first findeth his own brother Simon, saith unto him, We found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew, John, and Peter were all introduced to Christ. Someone pointed them to Jesus or brought them to Jesus. But when you get to John 1.43, something interesting happens It says, the day following, Jesus would, that means he desired, he was minded to go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Now, I have a picture if they have that, just to give you again an idea. Uh, They were baptizing down here south uh, beyond Bethbara, where John was baptizing just north of the Dead Sea. This is about 100 miles to get up here to the Sea of Galilee, uh, the city of Capernaum. And so uh, the next day Jesus travels. This is about a five-day journey, about 20 miles a day to get up to that area. And, And you just think about how incredible to think that Jesus traveled on foot perhaps 100 miles because he was minded to go to Galilee to find Philip. Now, again, just to remind you, the southern region of Israel is known as Judea, the middle region is known as Samaria, and the northern region is known as Galilee. So whenever they went from Galilee, they had to go through Samaria down to Jerusalem, which is over in this area. Uh, they would have to journey through Samaria. That's when they would, the Samaritans wouldn't let them stay there, and that's when the sons of thunder wanted to burn them down. But here, Jesus travels to Galilee and finds Philip. Jesus told the disciples multiple times this statement. John 15, verse 16, he said this, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go forth and that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it. It's important for you to know that you are here today because God in heaven loves you and he has drawn you by His sovereign grace to salvation. You're not saved because you were running after God. You weren't saved because you were the seeker. You have been sought by God. You have been purchased by Christ. John 6 is such a powerful chapter. Well over 10,000 people are there. And there's something that happens in John 6 that I don't think many Christians have seen. Jesus feeds these massive crowds of people. 5,000 men plus women and children could have been 20 plus thousand people easily. Jesus says to the crowds in John 6, 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, 
but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? They're thinking, they're, 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 they're desiring food, they're desiring salvation, but through some work. And Jesus said in verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. If you want to be saved, you believe on Christ. That, you want to know what the work is? It's belief. Then they went, uh, they wanted a sign from Jesus because they're not believing him. Show us a sign, show us a sign. And Jesus goes on to say this in John 6, 37. I can tell you this much. Growing up, pastors that I sat under never talked about this. They just never did. John 6, 37, Jesus said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. What does that mean? What does that mean? Did the Father give certain people to Jesus to be saved? What does it mean? All of them will come to me. He says that in the context of people wanting a sign. Like, why would you say that? There's not a preacher in the world that I know would say that. What does he say that? And to him that cometh to me, I will not cast out. There are those that will be saved. The Bible refers to them as called, chosen, elected. Whether you like those words or not, it really doesn't matter. They're in the B-I-B-L-E. Y'all with me? Anybody ever, you use the word elect and they think you're some crazy, far-minded person that doesn't want to evangelize, really? Because Jesus is bringing this up to a hostile crowd who is not believing in him. And he says, and anyone that comes to me I will cast out. Guess what? The, the gospel's available to all, isn't it? John 6, 44. He says, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. You, that's why I said, you're not here because of you. God drew you to himself. Is that wonderful news? Is that good? Yes. Well, I chose Christ. From your perspective, the limited eight-ounce cup when you're standing before the ocean, and he says, and I will raise him up at the last day. He's saying this to crowds of, like, why would you say it in that context? After Jesus preaches one of the most offensive messages about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, this is so offensive to the crowds. Like, why does he say this to them? This is not what any preacher would ever say. He says that's why you couldn't write the Bible. It's impossible. After he preaches it, all the crowds leave him because of the message. They came for the food. They leave for the message. Yesterday, when I get up to begin to preach the gospel, at the, um, this happens to me at funerals. I get very, I'll get on the gospel. I mean, I make it as clear as possible for quite a season of time to make sure people understand. And there's typically always some people who get out and walk out. They can't handle the message. And at the end of this, when the crowds leave, listen to what Jesus says in verse 65 of John 6. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my father. He says, 
No one can come to me except the Father draw him. He preaches one of the hardest messages. And he says, I told you, nobody can come to me except the Father give it to them. And guess who stayed? The ones who the Father gave to Christ. Jesus, and, and Peter said, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Salvation is the work of God. Here Jesus says over and over, there are certain people God the Father has given to Christ. They will be Christ. They will be saved. They will be given to Christ. John 17, 6, Jesus said this. In the, in the high priestly prayer of Christ, John 17, 6, He said, I manifested Thy name unto the men which You gave me out of the world. What does that mean? What does that mean? That the Father gave Christ certain men out of the world. Is that what that means? Thine they were. Oh, they were yours before He gave them. And you gave them me, and they kept thy word. He says in verse 12, the same chapter, John 17. While I was with them in the world, look what he says. I kept them. You know why you can't lose your salvation? Because you're kept by God. And if you could lose your salvation, guess who lost it? It's not you that failed, it's Jesus that failed. You hear that? If you believe you can lose your salvation, then Jesus cannot keep them who are his. He said, I kept them, and none of them is lost. None of them? Why didn't he lose any? Because he holds you in his hand, John 10, right? But the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so in Acts, Paul speaks of his salvation. Did Paul choose Christ or did Christ choose Paul? Acts twenty-two fourteen. 14. Paul's reciting his salvation. He says, the God of our fathers has chosen thee. I mean, was, was Paul looking for Jesus on the road to Damascus? He's like, where's Jesus at? You know? I mean, he's going to kill Christians. Put him in prison. And Jesus came and invaded his life. Let me ask you this question. Does Jesus do that same thing to every person that's ever lived? No. No, he does not. He, does, he didn't come to you blazing in glory like the sun and knock you on the ground, did he? He didn't do that to you. God can do whatever he wants in the realm of salvation, and he's extended the gospel to every person on earth. Can be, anybody can be saved. I believe Christ died for all. But you need to understand that people who get saved, it's because God has opened their hearts to that. From our viewpoint, we choose Christ. I understand that. But from heaven's viewpoint, Christ has chosen us to salvation. Consider today that God knew you, according to Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. He pursued you. You're sitting here, listening to his word. You never walk away from his word, and you haven't denied the faith because it's him that kept you. You're kept by God. Because I can tell you, if it wasn't him keeping you, you're all out of here today. You're not here. You understand? It's not your goodness that keeps you faithful. Amen? I mean, we follow him sometimes against our own will. You know, Lord, I, I'm really struggling with this today. And yeah, he doesn't let you go. He doesn't let you go. And, and we'll worship him for all eternity for his saving grace. So Jesus finds Philip. And what does he say to Philip? Follow me. This is a verb in the present imperative. It means follow me and let that be your continual way of life. He, th this statement's used 20 times in the New Testament. 19 times in the Gospels. So let me ask you, where is the long message in verse 43? <laughs> I mean, 
two words, follow me. Where is the extended explanation? You don't find it? Just follow me. What does Philip do? Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, verse 44, the city of Andrew and Peter. This lets you know that he must have known Peter and Andrew, very likely fishermen together. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip immediately becomes a follower of Christ. He immediately believes in Jesus. What you find here is Philip was pursued by Christ, and secondly, Philip had an unhesitating and immediate faith. An immediate faith. He wasn't hesitant, doubtful. He didn't have a bunch of questions that kept him from Christ. He believed and trusted in the Lord. And I think so many people today miss the gospel. They miss salvation because they put more weight on their doubts than the word of the living God. Do you get that? We put more weight on our little pea brain question. This little tiny foolish question. I mean, think about how many questions you would ask a neurosurgeon. He would look at you and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. But we'll stand and say, God, I can't really give my life to you because I have this question. You know, why is there suffering in the world? If there's suffering, then you can't be a saving God. And Jesus says, have you never looked at the cross? Have you never seen what Christ did? There's no one that suffered more than him. And you doubt his goodness? So hold on to your doubt and elevate that greater and more valuable than the word of the living God and you'll be kept from eternity in heaven. Today I cast my doubts aside and I say Jesus is Lord. Amen. Don't miss it. If you have some questions in your mind, surrender them to Christ. Secondly here, we see Philip was a student of Scripture. You know, Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Show me a person who struggles to believe in Christ. I'll show you a person who treated God's Word very lightly in life. Well, I just struggle to believe. I just have so many questions. And I ask people, so have you, have you read the Bible? And you know what they say? Well, not very much. Oh, have you ever read it? Well, not really. Oh, so you don't believe it because you've never read it. The Word is the oxygen to your faith. If you don't breathe it in, you'll never have living faith. Jesus said in John 5, 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus had veiled himself from two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And they said, well, you haven't heard? Are you a stranger? Yeah, I'm a stranger. And, and, and he says, tell me what you, what's on your heart. You guys look really sad. And he says, well, you know, we believe that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, and he was crucified, and he said he was going to rise from the dead three days later, and there were women who came from the tomb and said he had risen, but this is the third day, and we haven't seen him. Jesus is like, really? Oh. And he's veiling himself so they can't tell it's him. Also, you're keep, you, you have this question, this doubt that's keeping you from faith in Christ, right? And, and what does he say to them? Luke 24, 25, then he said unto them, you know, let me encourage you guys. 
Let me edify you. You know, I really... No, he says, you're fools. It's a Greek word, moros. It's where we get the word moron from. You morons. And slow of heart to believe all that the... <laughs> Is Jesus a little hard here? Amen? You morons. You, you fools. Slow of heart to believe. You're slow to believe. Stop being Thomas and slow to believe. How much? All. You need to believe all of it. All that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Don't you know the Bible? And beginning at Moses and in all the prophets, he expositionally broke down the scriptures to them. Verse by verse by verse. All the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Notice... Notice in Philip's response in verse 45. Verse 45, he says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write Jesus of Nazareth. You know, what did that reveal about him? It revealed that Philip was one who pursued Christ in the scriptures. And Christ pursued him. If you desire truth, God will bring the truth to you. He will bring it to you. You want truth? Oh, he'll give it to you. You take one step toward him, he's taking ten steps towards you. Acts 10, Cornelius, that's the reality there. Now, Philip was not only a student of the word, but Philip had an evangelistic heart. Now, this Philip is not the same Philip of Acts 8, just so you know that. Now, one of the signs of true salvation is you begin to have a burden for your family and your friends to be saved, to know Christ Listen, don't tell me that you're a Christian and you've never told anyone about Jesus. I don't believe that probably exists. I don't think that you could probably be a Christian and never have told anyone. If you've never told anyone, you need to examine whether you're a true Christian or not. How does a pregnant mother, excited about her baby, never tell anyone that she's pregnant? You don't have to encourage her to do that. Women pick it up fast, don't they? I think she's pregnant. Why? There's, you can just see it in her eyes. Us men are like, what? You know? I have no idea. We're running, you know. Oh, she's got to be pregnant. And the guys are like, I'm not asking her. You know? I've done that before. And not good. That is not good. I made that mistake, I think, one time in my life. I will not do that again. So when's the baby do? Oh, I am, you look lovely in that dress. I just, <laughs> must be the, the horizontal lines, just, you know, I just, I don't, I'm sorry, I can't, let me just leave, you know. It's not good, not good. You know, the greatest act of love that you can ever show somebody is to bring Jesus to them. Let me ask you, who's the last person you told about Christ? Who's the last person you brought the gospel to? You should have such a burden for your friends. As I told you a week or two ago, you should, you should have by now written down a list of your family and friends that are not saved. If you've not done that, you must not love them. You must not. If you have family and friends that don't know the gospel and you've chosen not to take that edification and pray for them and think about bringing the gospel to them, knowing that they would die and go to hell and that has not motivated you, there cannot be love for them. Right? Do you think there is? How could I love someone who's, who has cancer? I have the cure for cancer and I don't even tell them about the cure. 
And then I would have the audacity to say I love them. So, so examine your heart in that. Let that prick you. If, if you've, I would rather offend you to get you to bring them the gospel than to not offend you, right? Philip had faith to follow Christ. He had faith to follow Christ and he had faith to bring the gospel to his friend. But Philip also struggled with his faith when it was tested. Flip with me to John 6 because he shows up again in John two more times. In John 6, Jesus is feeding the 5,000, the story that I just had mentioned to you previously. It says in verse 5, when Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. So, so Jesus is testing Philip's faith. <laughs> it's always fascinating to me. He, he asks him a question. He knows what he's going to do, but he just wants to see how far Philip's faith would take it. Now, very likely Philip was the food guy. You need a food guy, you know. Jesus would often send them ahead to make sure they had preparation. I can guarantee Philip was that guy. Philip was, must have been an organized man. If he was in our city, he would have probably been an engineer working at the base. I mean, those, those, those methodical, left-brain, thinking, rational guys. He was very practical, and sometimes he would respond in too practical of a way. And, and so the Lord asks him a question that exceeds his physical abilities. Like, what happens when the Lord's asking you something that exceeds your abilities? Do you think the Lord does the same thing to us at times? Do you think the Lord ever allows life to squeeze us or the temperature to rise, knowing practically and rationally this just doesn't seem to work out and it can't work out? Do you think the Lord ever wants things like that to happen in our life just to see how we respond to challenges of life? So how does Philip respond in verse 7? Philip answered him, You are the God of all gods. You've done so many miracles. Why would you even ask me? You know what he does? This is a left brain guy. This, this is a numbers man, isn't it? He pulls out his pen and paper. He's like, I mean, he quickly, logically, methodically worked this in his brain. And he came down, Lord, it would take 200 denarii. This is eight months wages, working every day for eight months to get enough food for just everybody to have a little bit. Like, what kind of response is that? First, as I said, he's very likely over the food. He immediately responds in an analytical way. You know, this, this, is, this can be a very beneficial thing at times, um, being logical, being rational. But you know, being logical and rational can sometimes be a great hindrance to faith because God doesn't work inside of those boundaries. He is not stuck inside of there. He looked at it physically before he saw it spiritually. You know, Philip had witnessed great miracles of Christ. Incredible power. And when I asked a question by the Lord of miracles, a question that didn't have a physical possibility, he limits his answer to physical resources. He needed to learn what Gabriel said to Mary when he says, with the Lord, all things are possible. He needed to remember and know what Christ said in Luke 18, 27, that the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. What in your life, friend, do you need to believe God for today? 
What in your life are you viewing through the eyes of flesh that you need to start viewing through the eyes of faith? What, what may God be testing your faith in? What do you need to trust God for? You know, I see this sometimes in the area of souls. People say stuff like this, you know, I don't think they'll ever get saved. I'll never forget Nathan Woodworth telling me that about Eric. And Eric is a missionary that we're raising $34,000 for this month to preach the gospel in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Because his brother was an atheist. He'll never believe it. Really? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Philip was not, not always spiritually minded in those settings. Uh, Philip was also not decisive. Look over to John 12, another place he comes up. John 12. John 12, uh, verse 20. It says, and There were certain Greeks among them which came to worship at the feast. The same came before Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. I think I'm going to staple that sentence to the pulpit up here. Sir, we would see Jesus so that anybody who ever stands up to preach in this pulpit knows what they need to give to the people. The church isn't coming to look for people's or pastors' opinions. They're coming to see Christ, aren't they? Sir, we would see Jesus, and Philip cometh and telleth too. Andrew, why doesn't he take him to Jesus? Now, you, now if you bring somebody to Andrew, Andrew's going to get him to Jesus. We learned that a couple weeks ago, right? Now, why do these why did these Greeks come to Philip? Well, most of the disciples had two names. They had a surname and then a like a like a family name, then they had like a public name. But the 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 name Philip was a Greek name, and it means lover of horses. But it's possible that they came to Philip because they're like, that's a Greek name, and, and so they came to him. More likely they knew him from living in Bethsaida of Galilee, which verse 21 points to. And it was known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. There was a lot of Gentiles that lived up in that region. He was very likely bilingual because he had a Greek name. They came to Philip. Instead of him bringing them to Jesus, he first wants to clear that with Andrew. Jesus had given some instructions, and we're going to look at that in a few weeks from now in Matthew 10, verse 5 and 6, where he says, don't go into the Samaritans or the Gentiles, but first go to the Jews. So maybe he was hesitant, but he had seen Jesus witness to the woman at the well. He saw Jesus heal the, the, the Roman centurion servant, the Gentile's uh, servant. But he was hesitant. He was indecisive. This spiritual hesitation, slowness to grasp what, what he should have done here. But Andrew had no hesitation. He brought them immediately to Christ. We see this. Again, this spiritual hesitation in John 14, one last place we'll look at about Philip's life. Look over to John 14. John 14 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. This is the day before Jesus dies. He says in verse 3, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Whither I go, you know the way you know, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Great declaration of salvation by grace through Christ alone. Verse 7, if you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. And then verse 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father. And it sufficeth us. We will be satisfied if we see the Father. 
You know why? Because this left brain guy could only see through the eyes of flesh at that point. You know, we haven't seen the Father. You know, he, he couldn't see the spiritual application here, the reality of that. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? You know, Philip was the devout man who studied the Scriptures. He left everything to follow Christ. But though he followed, he showed at times an imperfect faith that was suppressed by his physical sight. He was analytical. He displayed a limited spiritual perception at times. He was more inclined to respond with facts and figures than with faith. Yet it's important to know that God used Philip in such a dynamic way to bring the gospel to far reaches of this earth. Philip was faithful to the end. History records that he went on to preach in Greece, Syria, and in Asia Minor. And according to the Fox's Book of Martyrs, Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, and then crucified in Hierapolis in A.D. 54, about 24 years after Christ. Philip was a faithful man of God, greatly used. Though you see, time and time again, he had struggles along the way. What kind of people does God use? He uses people like that. Let's look at one more man, Bartholomew. Bartholomew, he's rarely mentioned in scriptures. In the first three gospels, they only list him by name in the, in the group of 12. But in John's gospel, we have a short and rich section about him. If you turn back to John chapter number one, John chapter number one. The name Bartholomew is Hebrew and, it, and it's a surname. It means son of Tolmai, Bartholomew, son, Bar means son of. And so that was his, what's known as a, patron, a patronomic name or the a son, like, like a name honoring the patriarch of the home, the father's name. He carried the father's name. So son of Tolmai. So that was like his family name. But Nathaniel was kind of his public name. So he would have been known as Nathaniel bar Tolmai or Nathaniel son of Tolmai. He's always listed in the gospels uh, with Nathaniel or with Philip. They must have been close friends associates. Very likely they studied the scriptures together and Philip introduces Nathanael to Jesus. John 1 verse 45 says, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. By this statement from Philip to Nathanael, it would seem clear that they were students of scripture probably together. Notice Philip doesn't explain those passages to Nathanael either. He doesn't say, you know, the Old Testament says, and he begins to explain that. Because he doesn't explain it, and because Nathaniel doesn't ask an explanation, lets you know that Nathaniel was a student of Scripture as well, right? Now, how does Nathaniel respond to this news in verse 46? Nathaniel said, that's the most wonderful news I've ever heard. Is that what he says? He says, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Now, why did he say that? Well, Nazareth was a very insignificant town. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the Jewish Talmud. It's not even mentioned by Josephus or in any Gentile writings. It is a small, off-the-path town. I, I've been to Nazareth. The character of the people of Nazareth were despised and condemned. To be called a Nazarene was like to be looked down upon. You know, a, a city carries an identity, doesn't it? <laughs> I won't mention, but I had somebody from a, a more fertile city than Xenia, a more successful city, 
Zinnia, they were invited to Lighthouse years ago, and they said, you mean you go to church in Xenia? You know, that, that, that's, Xenia's maybe different than Beaver Creek or uh, maybe some other towns. I mean, you, you use the word Yellow Springs, carries an identity. You know, we, have a, we had a church planter here just a few weeks ago from Athens, down in Athens. If you know anything about Athens, you're like, oh, they're planting a church. Athens needs a church, right? Right? I still say Yellow Springs needs a church. I thought about going there and starting one. So, so here Nathaniel is uh, introduced to Christ. Um, and, and, and before he meets Jesus, he's struggling with this Nazareth thing. His response reflects just the humble place that Jesus came from. Not only did Jesus come from the lowly town of Bethlehem, but he came and grew up in the lowly town of Nazareth. Just to kind of give you an idea of the character of the people in Nazareth, the first time Jesus preached in Nazareth, the people took Jesus to the edge of the city to kill him. Uh, there was some prejudice, obviously, here in uh, Nathaniel's heart toward Nazareth. Do we have that next picture? Just to give you an idea where Nazareth was compared to uh, the city of Capernaum. So Capernaum is where like Jesus' main ministry hub was. Nazareth is about, uh, um, about a 10-hour on-foot trip to get here. So uh, it's been, been, a, been a, good, a good day's journey. This is maybe 20 miles, 20 to 25 miles away uh, was Nazareth from Capernaum, just to give you an idea. So they, 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 they knew the town. I mean, it was, it was not that far away. And so just as the Gideons looked down on the Galileans, so the Galileans looked down on those in Nazareth. The phrase come out of doesn't mean just they, 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 they are from there, but they're identified with the morals and values of that place. Now, in the Greek order here, it says out of Nazareth stands first in the sentence. Like if you were to read this in Greek, it doesn't read like this. Uh, in verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? If you were to read it in the Greek, it would say this, out of Nazareth, can any good thing come? That's, that's how it's literally, because Greek's written in, in, in the opposite way is what English would be. And so that's, that's the emphasis, out of Nazareth? Like, really? Nathaniel's skeptical, he's uncertain, he has doubts. He questions his friend's evangelistic effort. But Philip is unflinching in the face of this skepticism. Look what Philip says in verse 46. He says, can anything good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith to him, come and see. I love that. Come and see. Notice he doesn't get involved in an argument over the character of Nazareth. He doesn't try to debate with his friend over some unnecessary point. He knows that the evidence, being Jesus, speaks loud enough. Listen, friend, when you share the gospel with someone, don't get caught up in arguing over unnecessary points. You mean out of Nazareth? Well, Nazareth isn't that big. You know, no, don't do that. Did Adam have a belly button? Did they start getting it? Bring it back to Christ. Show them Jesus. Bring them to the word of the living God. The scripture speaks. Today, if you don't see Jesus as the son of God, he is the savior. I invite you, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Search the scriptures for in them you will find Christ. 
I like what D.L. Moody said of this passage. He said, let the objectors or inquirers only get one personal interview with the Son of God and that will scatter all their darkness, all their prejudice, and all their unbelief. The moment that Philip succeeded in getting Nathaniel to Christ, the work was done. So we say to you, come and see. How does Jesus respond to this skeptical man? Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Jesus says this as a way of playing on words. Remember back where the name Israel was changed from Jacob? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. What did the name Jacob mean? Supplanter, deceiver, like a man of guile, a deceiver. His name was changed to Israel. Jesus is playing off of that name and addressing Nathanael by saying, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. It would be like saying, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no Jacob. The Lord was not saying that Nathanael was without sin, but that he was a sincere, authentic man. He was a genuine truth seeker. What an honoring statement toward Nathanael from the Lord. And I think how, how interesting that is because Nathanael's response to Jesus from Nazareth was skeptical, but Jesus comes and gives him a statement of honor. <laughs> Nathanael was a genuine man. He was real. He sought the truth. Those who seek the truth, more light will be given. And haven't we seen that in the first four disciples? They traveled 100 miles to John the Baptist and Christ came to their life. I would ask you, friend, how much have you sought the Lord how much have you sought the Lord? So many people stand with their questions and doubts. And all their reason for their question and doubts is really so they could stay in their sin because they don't want to surrender their life to the Lordship of Christ. So Nathaniel was a sincere man. It distinguished him from all the hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees. And Nathaniel's response to Christ in Verse 48, look what he says. Nathanael saith to him, Whence knowest thou me? When did you know me? Jesus said this, Before that Philip called thee, when, you, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Here Jesus displays his deity, his omniscience, but also that he could see him. Now the Jewish writings tell of distinguished rabbis who would sit accustomed to sitting early underneath of fig trees and studying the Torah. According to the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish uh, scholars or on practical living, they encourage men to meditate under large trees, to read and reflect on the scriptures at least once a day. This must have been the practice then of, Phil, of, of Nathaniel. And, and this is me reading between the lines, but I do not think this is far-fetched at all. I believe Nathaniel was probably reading that morning about Jacob's name being changed to Israel. That he would have perhaps read that God, uh, and even his prayer, don't let me be like Jacob. Let me be a sincere Israelite. And perhaps that day, as all the Jews faithfully would pray, Lord, let your Messiah come. Let your deliverer come. Jesus comes to him and literally answers those requests one after another. I believe that's probably what happened. And why do I say that? Look at his response in verse 49. Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Why would he say that? Because Jesus intentionally said something to him that connected to him in such a way that Nathanael said, there's no way he would have known that. He's literally answering my... You ever have that happen to you? You ever, you ever have a prayer or something you're searching for? You come to church and you're like, I've been asking that all week. That's incredible. 
had a guy one time who was a Je- grew up Jehovah Witness, came to church, and he said there was about five or six questions. He would fire a question off. He said, then you would answer it. It was crazy. I was like, what in the world? He said, and I asked another question in my mind. He said, a few minutes later, you answered it specifically. He's like, what is that? He said, this happened five or six times. It so blew him away, he ended up getting saved. I went to his house. He's like, I've never had anything like this happen in my life. He'll be here today in the second service. Isn't that something? Now, why did Jesus said that? Because I believe that's what was going on in his mind. What's interesting here is Nathaniel ascribes the claim of deity to Christ. He is the first one outside of John the Baptist to call Jesus the Son of God, a name just defining the deity of Christ. For Nathaniel to so quickly respond to faith to the Lord's words reflect he was a student of Scripture, a seeker of the truth. Light flooded his heart. You know, when you consider the New Testament and how many people saw the miracles of Christ, saw the great things that he did, and they did not believe he's the Son of God, it only took one sentence from the lips of Christ to make Nathaniel say, you are the Messiah. His soil was soft, wasn't it? Parents, let's make sure our kids' soil is, is soft with the Word of God. Let's make sure that our hearts are hungering for the Word of God. History records that he would go on to be a missionary in Asia. Nathaniel would preach Christ in what was present-day Turkey. He was martyred for preaching in Armenia. One account said he was flayed to death with a whip. And another account of his death said that he was skinned alive by the king there. And then crucified. But all accounts of his death reveal that he died faithfully and in a horrific way for the Lord. 2,000 years ago, two friends were introduced to Jesus. 2,000 years ago, these two men who studied the Scriptures longed for Christ became immediately followers of Christ. 2,000 years ago, they took the pen of their life and they said, Jesus, we want you to write it. And the Lord began to dictate the chapters of their life. We don't know much about them before they live for God, but the effects of their life from then on has now rippled down through eternity. And I would ask you today, who is authoring your life? What kind of impact are you going to make when your life's over? 